a show I'm so happy to bring to you guys this week. This guy, our guest, he, he exemplifies the true meaning of what it is to be a power move maker. He is a DJ, a producer, an artist. Um, and I'm not just talking about a DJ who puts artists on their records and call themselves an artist. No, this guy actually sings, he raps, he does it all. He's a, a, a choreographer in his past life. He's a radio show host. And now he is a author of an amazing book for anybody who's aspiring to get into the music business and succeed. How to Win Big in the Music Business. Please help welcome to this week's episode of Power Moves Maker, Mr. Clinton Sparks. Get familiar. Clint, where's the applause? <laughs> Clinton, I had to bring you on with a big intro this week. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. It's a big show. Clinton, big hopes. It, 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 it's a really big show, and before we get into it, I have to tell you, as a longtime friend of yours, I am so immensely proud of you. To add, you know, I've watched you come up over the years. Um, you've done so many things. There are so many people out there whose lives you've already affected through your music, and now you are transferring some of your wisdom and your experiences through a new book, um, How to Win Big in the Music Industry, and I want to really dig deep because there's so many people out there who want to get in the music industry and you have so much knowledge and success and your willingness to sh um, share it with our audience. I'm, I'm, I'm just so proud of you. So thank you. Before we go too deep into it, why, why'd you decide to write this book, um, Clinton? Uh, you know, it's funny. So sometimes I, I wonder like how real I should be when I talk on these kind of interviews. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, Look, I'm from Boston, so all we do is swear, right? Yeah. So, so when I sit down, I'm like, because there's nothing but a bunch of shady motherfuckers out there. Yeah. Like, that's what I want to say, right? And, like, I've been in this industry for 20 years. Like, you see me come up. You were already, like, killing it when I just started, right? So, like, you were one of the guys. I'm like, oh, man, I need to become his friend, right? So, like, <clears throat> all I would see throughout my career, uh, prison company excluded, all I would see is, like, People were just shady, man. They were just like whack. They were greedy. They were out for self. They were ego driven. And like, you know, we live in a day and age now where these, there's so many people now. It's such an easy entry point to get into music, right? With SoundCloud, YouTube, Spotify, stream. Like at one point, there was like, you had to go through a funnel and then the gatekeepers had to approve you. And then like they would absolutely promote you to everybody else. But like, I noticed even when I first started, when I was trying to come up and get on, I would notice the psychology of music executives and people in the music business, uh, so much so that I lied my way into success, to be honest. Like, even when I first started, um, I knew that the record industry was so far behind in culture and technology that in, in 1999, in my mom's basement where I lived, Right, I just lied to the music industry and pretended like I had an online cracking radio show. Mm -hmm. And I knew that they didn't understand the internet yet. And so that's how I got like Eminem and Common and Cameron and Wu-Tang and Talib Kweli and everybody at my mom's house. Because now when they would come to Boston and do like- I remember that house. Yeah, yeah. And they would come to my mom's basement. My mom would make cookies and we would record over my beats and I would just do interviews with people because we were all starting out. You know what I mean? So. 
they didn't know better. So that's how I started. And, you know, the reason I even knew that is because I befriended the local DJ on the big radio station there because I never even wanted to be, you know, out in front. I wanted to be the guy behind the scenes that helped everybody else become successful. Um, so when I was a producer and he would tell record labels, hey, my friend Clinton's making these beats, you should listen. I would overhear the phone calls and the label execs would be like, yeah, yeah, cool. Hey, you playing my record? So then I was like, oh shit, I should just become a DJ because then they'll want to be my friend. So I just- Stop there for a second because this is exactly where I want to go. You, you just dropped so much information, but I know you, Clinton Sparks, the DJ. I remember coming through Boston, going to that same house, and you had the turntables set up, but you were Clinton Sparks, the DJ. Tell us, how did you get into DJ? And was that a deliberate thing um, that you sat back and you said to yourself, hey, this is my way in? Or was it just a passion and a love for the craft that made you pick up those um, turntables and, and those records? Well, I, I realistically wanted to be a producer and a songwriter. That was my real goal. And, and I was an artist at the time, too. So when I realized, so I, the reason I already knew how to DJ is because since I was like 12, or 11, um, I would hear songs on the radio. At that time, I didn't know what a remix was. I would just hear on the weekend, like an extended version of like Prince, right? And then I'd be like, what is this version that plays for seven minutes, right? So then like, I would find like a part that was an instrumental and on my mom's dual cassette deck, I would record and loop that part so that I could just write over that part and come up with new melodies. I'd challenge myself to come up with a whole different song over that melody. So that's really where I wanted to go. But then when I noticed that no, nobody would listen to my beats being like this, you know, this white kid from Boston just trying to make hip hop beats. So I was, and I seen how they were all ball sucking my friend to play his rec, to play their records because he was important. Well, who's radio. your friend? You keep mentioning him. Um, this kid, Roy Barboza. Oh, Roy, big shout out to Roy Barboza. Right, so you know, I would hang up at the radio station and I would just understand and learn the business of radio and you know, record labels and like the, how they work together. So, I mean, I started, most people don't know, my first radio gig is I used to write all the funny skits for the morning show in Boston on Jam 94.5. So I was like the guy that would run out in the streets and do all the funny bits. Uh, so that's how I started my radio business. And was then, it paid? Uh, uh, was it? I don't recall. I don't remember. Uh, the only reason I ask you that is because, you know, many people, and this is something I drive home in so many of my interviews and whenever I speak um, in public, many people do not like to start from the bottom. They think they're above that. They think well, that's, that they, that's today. That's today. Yes, exactly. So when, when I interview successful people like yourselves, I love, like yourself, I love to, to just take a pause for a second because getting into the music industry is set up to keep people out. Like, let's just call it what it is. It's a very small industry. Millions of people around the globe want to be in this industry. And it's just not enough jobs. There's not enough work. So you have to kind of be creative and find your way into it. Well, to your point, they want to be in the industry, the shiny part of it. They don't understand. They don't understand people like you and me we don't see our family. We don't see our kids. We do have to travel all the time. We are lonely a lot. We, there's a lot of stress. There's a lot. Look, at, I always say this. If you want a job that has no guaranteed pay, no overtime, no retirement plan, no health benefits, 
and you never ever know if you'll ever make money, get in the music business, be honest, right? So, but if you believe in yourself and you're willing to have the patience and you're willing to work really hard and you're willing to do mad shit for free, right? Then that's what it takes to really succeed in the music business. Now, today is a little bit different because it's a little bit more instant gratification. You can make a dope record, then go slap somebody on camera and you go viral and everyone checks out your music because you did some wild shit, mm-hmm. right? But it's like, and like, look, those are marketing tactics, right? That some people do, like look at people like 6 9 you know what I mean? They go and they troll the internet. So you just sort of light points at them and then they say, now listen to my music, right? So like you decide whether it's smart or it's not and whether it's sustainable. And we're realizing it's not sustainable because one of the things I always say is, you know, overnight success takes 10 years. However, most overnight success doesn't last 10 years. Correct. So the people that have had overnight sex, over, over, <laughs> <laughs> like all of us, uh, that have overnight success that took 10 years to get there, those are people that built a huge foundation, a big network, and a reputation so when they finally do break, like, it's something they can build on. It's not hollow. It's not a, it's not a flow that's going to fall through when you jump up too hard on it because you built a solid, strong foundation. And I think that's what – another reason, back to your point of why I wrote the book, there's a couple reasons. One, I'm sick of people getting misinformed, misguided, and misled. Right. And I've, I've watched it my whole career. I've watched literally labels lie. I've watched executives lie. I watched managers lie. I watched promoters lie. I watched people like, you know, and you've been around long enough to know who I'm going to, not who, but what I'm talking about. Like now, somebody who was maybe popping 15, 20 years ago, like, hey, I work for Rockefeller. I helped break Jay Z. You should pay me $10,000 to help you blow up. Right. And it's like, you and I both know that guy was a clown at Rockefeller, got no respect, and he had no role in breaking Jay-Z. He just happened to be working there at that time. But there's no Angie's list to fucking get receipts to see if this guy's really credible. You know what I'm saying? So like, now whether you're, and I've watched athletes dump mad money and people that lie to them. I watched, you know, even dudes in the hood. I watched Doughboys and Trap Kings spend mad money on the wrong fucking way to do things. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I've watched my whole career and I sit there like, ah, oh, fuck, I wish I could just jump in and tell them what to do. So it's one, my desire and passion to help people, right? And two, it's also my desire and passion to make the younger generation that don't really fucking get the formula and the tools and the strategies to build a sustainable career that you can scale and become a business for a long term, not just popular now. Remember, you can be pop, the popular kid in school, in high school. That's four years. When that shit's over, you ain't fucking popular anymore. You're so regular motherfucker. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's the same thing in, like, in music and in business and in life. I'm teaching you how if you've been popular in school, what to do with that popularity and how to build greatness out of that. Because a lot of people, one of my chapters is, is called um, Famous Doesn't Make You Great, But Great Can Make You Famous. I you love I mean? that. Beautiful. Right. And it's like, if you focus on the great, do you think Kobe or Beyonce or Jay-Z or the greatest or Michael Jackson, the greatest that's ever done it, do you think they practice every day and they work their ass off because they were looking for likes or views? 
They wanted to be the fucking greatest and remembered forever for being the greatest. And the reason they did all that shit is because they truly had a passion for it. It's what they loved to do. It wasn't what they just wanted to do because they thought it was a means to an end to be popular or make some money today. They wanted to do it because it's all they dreamed about. And it's what they wanted to do forever. And they were willing to put it in the work. Look at someone like a Tom Brady. Right? That dude walked in the day he finally got drafted to the Patriots. He walked into Kraft's office and said, this is the best decision you've ever made in your life. I'm going to become the greatest quarterback ever. What did he do? Became the greatest quarterback, quarterback ever. But and here's the problem that young kids have nowadays. They have this cocky, pompous attitude like, yo, man, I'm the hottest dude out here. If you sign me, we're going to make billions. It's like, first of all, that's a whack way to approach somebody because that's speculative. And secondly, you're not going to make billions more than likely. And then third of all, most people aren't going to put in the Tom Brady work. You know what I'm saying? Or the Beyonce work or the Michael Jackson work. They don't do that. They don't understand. It goes back to what you're saying. They don't understand all the work that needs to be put in to have a long – like, look at Jeff Bezos. You see pictures of him on the internet in his garage (laughs) in, like, the late 80s, early 90s just starting with an idea. That guy didn't just have an idea, tell a couple people, get really excited about it, do some dumb shit. You know what that dude did? Ignored his girl, didn't hang out, wasn't chasing ass, wasn't doing dumb shit. He was waking up, getting in his garage, coming up with ideas, falling asleep at his desk probably. And that's what I did. And that's what people like you did. That's what Puff's done. That's what everybody that's one major has done. I think, oh my God, you, you, you've said so much. I, I, I don't even know what to focus on at the moment, but let's just start there. You're from Boston, Massachusetts. Right. Hip hop in the 90s, I mean, you know, let's just call it what it is. Boston is, is it's not a, 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 a black town for that matter. You're doing hip hop. Like, you had to work your way out of there. You had to work your way to be noticed. What was it like for you focusing on this, this art form of hip-hop in the 90s in Boston? You know why I'm so happy you asked that question is because most people don't understand how that was a struggle. And then also me being white. Exactly. The thing I struggled is, like, to some people, an oxymoron. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, so it's kind of like, yo, all the odds were against me. You know what I'm saying? Like, first of all, at that time, it was New York and it was black. Like, that was what hip hop was, right? White, if you were white, you were either called Vanilla Ice or, you know, then, you know, later on, you would be called Eminem in the early 2000s. But like, you didn't get the respect, no, you considered. And some people didn't even want to invite you to the party. You know what I'm saying? They didn't even want you at the party. So, um, you know, it was weird because when I was a kid, ever since I was a kid, since I was 10, I was a hip-hop fan, right? So, like, you know, my first album my mother got me for Easter was Run DMC, you know, Rockbox album, right? So, like, that's all I knew. So even, like, like when Public Enemy and X-Clan and all these, like, groups, KRS-One, that I'm, like, a super fan of and I'm listening to, like, I went to the, to the, like, yo, is it okay for me to wear an African medallion? I, I, didn't, I just loved the culture and what it meant. It wasn't black or white. It was just dope, right? And, like, that's what I always looked at at life. Like, I never looked at life as colors. I looked at it as, like, either you're a dick or you're not a dick. And that's how I looked at life, right? 
No, it's so, a great way to look at life, it, but I really wanted to pull out the fact of what you odds. have been saying all along. Yeah. All of the odds were stacked against you, just trying yeah. to get into this culture, into this music industry, as a white guy in hip hop in the mid nineties. So I got, I got a lot well, of. I got a story that you're gonna love being a New Yorker and being in the music business this long. So when Power 105 in New York first launched, mm -hmm. uh, I got the call. Nobody knows this, right? Uh, I think I posted on Instagram one time, but like nobody knows this story. Like I got the call from the program director. Come to New York, we wanna to talk to you about being on Power 105. I go to New York and I sit down with them and it was like, no, we need somebody dope to go against Funkmaster Flex at the same time slot on Power 105. We want to give that to you. So, you know, at that moment, I'm like, oh my God, I made it. You know what I mean? This is crazy. I'm getting a New York radio slot. That's the top of the pile. If you're on New York radio, you can't get any higher than that. You know what I'm saying? Like in the mid 2000s, early 2000s, mid 2000s. So I'm like, First of all, I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, this is crazy, this is crazy, right? Like, and then after like, I let the excitement simmer down a little bit during this meeting, I started thinking to myself, like, I don't know if this is a smart move for me. Um, so, and now anybody in their right mind would take that slot. You agree? Absolutely. So I'm in New York. I just got off of the position at Power 105 to go against Funk Master Flex. So I end the meeting by saying, by the way, I just want for people, because people right now watching might not understand how big of a deal that is. That's literally like the number one station in the world for hip hop is Hot 97. The number one DJ in the world for breaking hip hop is Funkmaster Flex. The number one city for hip hop is New York. So like, if you're a New York, if you're a hip hop DJ and you get off of a New York radio slot, there's nothing bigger than that in the entire world for you to be offered. Agreed? Agreed, 100%. So I'm there, I get offered that slot. So I said, can I think about this? And they kind of look at me like, what the fuck? Who needs to think about an offer like this? So I thought about it and I concluded that it's not the right move for me to make. Uh, like another chapter in my book, just because you could doesn't mean you should. And I'll explain why. First of all, I'm a white guy from Boston coming to New York, a city that is on Flex's back in a, in a, with, where he breaks everybody in hip hop, a city that he built, right? A black dude from New York on the number one hip hop station from a white dude from Boston, which ultimately is New York's arch enemy, you know what I'm saying? Who has no credibility next to Funkmaster Flex. Do you know what I'm saying? So I'm thinking, if I go there, I'm gonna get ran out of New York. My legacy will be stained with being ran out of New York, and I will look like a cornball. No matter if I can outwit him, no matter if I can outskill him, no rapper or record label is going to be on Team Clinton yeah. <laughs> when it's against Flex. So it's like, I have nothing, no weaponry to even go against this dude in his fucking city. And you know, so that was number one, but the, the also parallel was, I had so much respect for Flex because people like me wouldn't even be here 
if it wasn't for what he's done. I don't even want to ever be put in a position where I have to do anything that looks like I'm disrespecting this dude. Because by disrespecting him would be disrespecting the very thing that made me me. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, why would I go after somebody that's done so much to open the doors to somebody like me? So I suggested, after I told them that I'm going to pass on that job going against Flex, I suggested that they go and get DJ Clue. And that's how DJ Clue got that slot on Power 105. Wow. Really? Does Clue know that story? Nobody knows that story except you now. <laughs> and, and when this releases, I will make sure that Clue knows that. Big up to Clue. He's done yeah, so much. Like, yeah, right the only person that would make any sense going against Flex that has the same credibility, the same reputation, you know, the same support of New York uh, in hip hop. The only person that would make sense is DJ Clue. You guys should go get DJ Clue. That's what I had told him. That's great, Clint. Um, haven't had the opportunity to read your book yet, but I'm sure there's a chapter in the book about relationships. Yeah. Something that you are brilliant at making and keeping. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to our audience about the importance of, number one, maintaining relationships, but how you, you know, you've worked with everybody from Macklemore to Eminem to Lady Gaga to... DJ, I mean, you were the the tour DJ for Sean Diddy Combs. You, your relationships are incredible. You're a guy from Boston. Are you born with the skill set to make these relationships? Is it something that can be learned? Is it? Are, are, are there any pearls of wisdom that you can speak to someone who, you know, even if they're not trying to get in the, into the music industry, you know, th this skill set is transferable. It doesn't matter what industry you're in, relationships are key. What are some gems you can drop for anybody who, number one, is trying to make key relationships, and number two, how do you sustain them? Well, you have pretty robust questions with a lot of answers I can throw at you. <laughs> um, one, what I do want to say is I, I concur with you that, look at the principles and values I teach in this book are transferable to any industry, including your own personal relationships, right? It's just, but I'm already, I'm already thinking of writing another book called Everything's the Same. <laughs> and the reason why is because everything is parallel to the music business. Um, but anyways, as far as like networking and relationships, can you be taught? Yes. Um, there's also something to say about your ability to be able to understand timing. There's a fine line between being persistent and being annoying. And I think you can attest to even my dealings with you because for those that don't know, the reason I was Sean Diddy Combs tour DJ is because of you. Mm -hmm. um, and that was me reaching out to you saying, yo, I heard Puff needs a DJ. And I lobbied on why I would be the obvious choice to you, right? And the reason I did it, one, I was able to convince you and sell you, which you already probably believed in me. But the more I kept hitting you with different things, it was like, you know what, this does make sense. You know what I mean? But then there was also a fine line of how many times I hit you before I become annoying or nag you so much that you're like, yo, fuck, dude, and you don't even want to help me. You know what I'm saying? So, like, it's timing. It's like, let me let it breathe a little bit. Let me send them a reminder. Let me let it breathe a little bit. Let me talk about something else so just I'm on his mind, but not that. And what that does is subconsciously remind you, like, oh, shit, I'm supposed to hit Puff about Clinton. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, there's a, 
there's a real art to how to hit people when you need a when you need something from somebody, the last thing you should do is ask them for what you need. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it's like you figure out ways. The way that I've succeeded is if I need something from somebody, I figure out what is it I can provide to them that's of equal or even more valuable than what I'm ultimately going to need from them. Right? So that. it's like like even you with you know the Ciroc brand, with you know power moves and, and you guys running the whole Diageo Ciroc you know, campaign with the Ciroc boys and stuff. Like, like, I mean, I'm sure you'll attest to how important I was to that campaign from coming up with, I literally made a Ciroc star song. You yep. know what I mean? Like, <laughs> we, made a, we made a video with Puff and Rick Ross and Jada Kiss and LMFAO and Black Eyed Peas and Megan Good. All these people are in a Ciroc star song. That song, another story that the world doesn't know is when we made that song, it was fresh off the heels of the locks, J.D. Kiss and Styles, and then being pissed off at Puff and going public about the whole publishing. Yep. So, like, what ended up happening is I was working with that band, Chester French, who, like, everybody was trying to sign. Puff, Jermaine Dupree, uh, Pharrell, Kanye, everybody, right? And they would just ask me, because they see how much I promote Ciroc, they were like, how do you, how do you have a, you know, these are 17 year old white kids from Harvard. They're like, how do you have a Ciroc deal? You know what I mean? <laughs> Cause they also know I don't drink. So they're like, how do you have a Ciroc deal? You don't even drink. Right. And I was like, it's not about, you know, the drinking. It's about the, the art of knowing how to market and how to help build the brand. And they were like, man, that's amazing. Do you get to hang out with Puff? And da da like, and I was like, yeah, like, you know, at that point, it's just like you. It's so normal to be with Puff. You don't, the allure that somebody else is, you're just like, yeah, whatever, he's cool. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> but like, so they're super excited. Well, we're literally talking about that. Wale texts and says, yo, Puff's talking about Chester French. And I'm like, yo, that's crazy. You're asking me about Ciroc. He's talking about you. And in that very moment, I go, I got the idea. Let's make a song called Ciroc Star and pitch it to Puff to, do, to be a part of the songs since he fucks with you guys. So... Right that very moment, we started producing the record. Fast forward a couple weeks later, Jadakiss comes over my house. It's funny, when I say things like that, people are like, wait, 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 wait. How's Jadakiss at your house? And you know what I mean? It's like, at this point, I'm already like a, a, a credible, respected DJ on radio, right? Because I had built my own syndicated radio show in 22 markets, and I did that on my own, which is a whole other story of how did I do that. But anyways, so when people would come to Boston, they'd now come to my house whether it's 2 chains, Jada Kiss, The Clips, whoever, right? So Jada Kiss comes to my house, and I go, yo, I got this record I want you to be on, right? Because I'm always a peacemaker, too. So he goes, let me hear it. Aye, Sparks, let me hear it, Sparks, right? So I play it. <laughs> Song comes on, right? He's like, yo, this is kind of crazy. I always wanted to be part of a rock record. Yeah, aight, aight, I'm, I'll, I'll jump on this, right? So I'm like, aight, don't. Now sit down for a second because I got to talk to you about it, right? So he sits down and I go, so here's what the song's about. Here's who I'm going to get on the song, right? And he's like, thanks, man, Sparks. Like, what you doing, man? Because like, he sees what I'm trying to do. Like, and I go, why don't I just call Puff? And why don't you guys just squash everything, man? Like, let's just be friends and, like, move on and make an awesome record. We'll shoot the video in Vegas, da da da, -da. And like literally that conversation got him on a call with Puff and Puff was like, yeah, let's do the record. And like, 
that went from them talking shit about Puff on Hot 97 to now being on a record together. So, incredible story. And that's and the reason I tell that story is the art of networking, right? Had I not built a credible reputation with the individuals, when I, I could never have made that work. Everything from, think of everything I just said. Everything from Wale's text to working with Chester French to being Puff's DJ to knowing Jada Kiss and building a radio show to building my network for the promoter who brought Jada Kiss to my house because what I've done with that promoter to be on my radio show by being a man of my word and doing what I say I'm going to do on my show. So I, there's so many tentacles. Yeah, working with me with the Ciroc boys. Like, working with you to, to even be a Ciroc boy in the first place to yeah. even be Puff's DJ. Do you know what I'm saying? So like, there's so many things that I'm always juggling. Like today, I've already been on six calls with six different companies before I talked to you. And our call was at 9 a.m. You know what I'm saying? Like my time. So like to say that is because, and by the way, all my calls are like, people think of people, like most people that aren't extremely successful, they look at those successful and they think like, like for instance, you look at Puff. The average person look at Puff and just think like, he just hangs out, parties, makes records, and just like, you know, walk, points at people to do things and they just do things, right? I mean, at this point, there's probably a lot of truth to that, right? But like, for many years, like, this dude's on calls, he's putting out fires, he's arguing with engineers and producers, he's making sure this is happening, fighting lawyers for his artists. That, like, you don't know all the stress that goes into somebody, you think because they're popping that they're rich and because they're rich, they're cool and they got no worries, right? And it's like the complete opposite. It literally is more money, more problems. You know what I'm saying? Like, so like that ain't just a song. So anyways, to go back to the networking part is like, is a fine art to networking and people just think like, a lot of people do it messy and ugly. You know what I mean? Like, and I can tell, like, even on my DMs, like, I pay attention to my DMs, I respond, I talk to people. Some kid today hit me with a DM, um, and I said something back to him. He goes, he goes, oh, man, I was shooting for the moon. I never thought you'd respond, LOL. And I said, good thing my office is on the moon, and you got good aim. Ooh, <laughs> I love that. Right? So I like, love that, Clint. You know what I mean? So, like, I talk, and, like, now that kid was cool. He wasn't like, yo, now that I got you, bang, 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 bang. You know, but I will remember that dude, you know what I'm saying? Like when he says something or, you know, when you say something gentle or nice, right? And you say something like, hey, if you wouldn't mind checking out the link on my bio or, hey, I'm doing this concert next week with so-and-so and so-and-so, you know, in a couple months when I get my, when I level up, I'm going to hit you with the link to my video. you got to plant seeds. You don't go into the kill right away. You know what I'm saying? Imagine if the first day I met you, Prez, the first day a white dude from Boston, I run up in your office, I'm like, yo, make me Puff DJ. You would have been like, man, this fucking dude out of here. Who the fuck are you? You know what I'm saying? Like, that's what you won't say. You know what I'm saying? I was with Gene Nelson recently, who you know, Absolutely. right? And he was in the studio telling a story about me to everybody about, you know, kind of what you brought up about this white kid from Boston. He was like, yo, you know what I love about Sparks? Since the day I met him, that dude's been a grinder and a hustle. I'll never forget one day I'm managing little Kim. She's like in her prime. Like everyone's fucking with Kim. He calls and says, I need a freestyle verse of little Kim. And I'm like, who the fuck are you? And you are, I'm Clinton Sparks, get familiar. Right? And, he was, and he said it like that. And everyone starts laughing. And he was like, yo, 
the way that he approached me and how he finessed it, this motherfucker got me to go get a verse from Little Kim for him. He goes, I don't know how he did it, but he got me to do it from not knowing who he was to getting Kim to go to the studio and cut a verse. You know what I'm saying? So like a lot of, I teach these things in my book, man. Like I teach the art of networking. But can I interject because there's something in you keep, and thank you um, very much, um, You even pointing out the fact that I was able to facilitate you becoming Puff's DJ. But for anybody who's listening, that would have never happened had Clinton Sparks not shown me year over year over year that he was an aggressive hard worker, that he knew his craft inside and out. You were not just a DJ. You were also a producer. You did live shows, so you understood the concept of improvising and what would make a live show better. So by the time, in, you know, like <clears throat> so many others, every DJ in the country was hitting me to be Puff's tour DJ. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody wants, wanted to get close to him. Mm -hmm. And I didn't randomly choose you just because you were reaching out. You were prepared. You did the work in advance. You showed me that you were capable of doing it. You were reliable. If Puff said, I need you at my house at three in the morning, and you were in Boston when you got the call at 12 midnight, you were gonna get out Buddy. the bed or whatever, drive from New York, I mean, from Boston to New York to make sure you're at his house at three in the morning. You were that dedicated. So I don't want it to, to seem like it was just a networking thing. It was also, you were so extremely prepared for the moment. Inconsistency. So like one of the things I used to do is I would always let the gatekeepers like yourself or the people in powerful positions, I'd keep them abreast of all the moves I'm making. Yep. Right? So I would always like, I was doing, dude, I was podcasting before it was a thing. I was a human ecosystem before we started talking about it in technology. I, I would be sending out like email blasts like way back in the day. Like I would always keep people abreast of the things that I'm doing. Not, not as like a, hey, look at me, but like, yo, I'm involved with this. If I can be of service to you, I'm always a phone call away. If you feel like this is a dope thing that you should tap into, hit me up. And I never asked for anything. It's just letting you know. You know what I mean? Like, so it's like in my book, I got another uh, chapter called the dirt pile strategy. And what I mean by that is, I'll give you an example. If I throw a little bit of dirt on the ground, you won't even notice it. You'll walk over it. If I throw a little bit more, you might still not notice it. If I throw a little bit more, you might kick a little bit up. It kicks up from your brain. If I throw a little bit more, you might feel it underneath your foot and be like, what was that? If I throw some more, before you know it, I built a little dirt pile and you're going to trip over it. Now you can't help from fucking notice that there's a dirt pile there. And that's what you have to be with like your content. You know what I mean? It's like, you've got to just create, don't put it out, create, don't put it out, create, don't put it out, create, don't put it out. Right. And it's like, and that's what I was. I mean, I would say it's safe to say that you, Sean Prez may have never met a consistently strategically hardworking person more than me in your history in the music career. And the reason I would say that too, and by the way, when I say it, there's a lot to it because it's like, okay, maybe there's one DJ that DJs more than me, you know what I'm saying? But there's not one person that does a lot of things well consistently 
and keeps growing and helping others and building businesses. Puff even said to me one day, this is when I knew I was kind of the shit when it came to work yeah. ethic, right? When Puff said, man, when do you sleep? And, and everyone they feels that way about Puff. Yeah, and everyone thinks that about him. So when he said that to me, I'm like, wait, 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 wait. What did you just ask me? And he was like, I'm just saying, well, I'm just saying, like, man, I know I work hard, but like, when do you sleep? He said that to me. And I was like, yeah. It's an amazing compliment, brother. That's an amazing compliment. Can I, can I take a detour for a second? I think this is a critical point I want to bring out in this interview, and you're the perfect person to discuss it with. Uh, Everything, even once our careers get off the ground, right? And we're moving, we're, we're, we're starting to become known in our industry. People are talking about us, we're making money. Life, it doesn't always go as planned. A lot of time, especially in our industry, there's setbacks. You know, you work your way to a certain level and then all of a sudden life happens. And there are these setbacks that kind of put us in a position of, damn, what do I do now? You know, my money stream has slowed up. I, this is all that I know. I don't know what my next steps are. What are the setbacks that you've um, encountered in your life and how have you overcome it? And, and, and I'm asking this because that sounds like a very general question, but I want to be a little bit more specific, right? We'll go to the, you mentioned earlier in the interview, you said, look, I don't drink. But I know, and this is public knowledge because you mentioned it before, so I want to just put it out there, but your dad was an alcoholic. That's mm -hmm. something that you had to overcome early. But also in our careers, you know, right now we, we, we're dealing with COVID. Everything's shut down. Life's unpredictable. Well, I have an easy answer for it. Go ahead. If you plan for failure, then you know how to deal with it when it happens. Elaborate. Right? Most people don't plan. So, I've, oh, okay, there's a, lot to, there's a lot to answer to this. So, you know, people look at, like you just say, my dad was an alcoholic. And people look at that as, um, you know, you took an L because your dad was an alcoholic and he left you. But it's like those L's aren't losses, they're lessons learned. You know what I'm saying? So why did I not become an alcoholic? Because I seen how fucking whack it was. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, why do I want to look like that? That's whack as shit. So like, why do I, I'm not going to beat up my girl. I'm not going to leave my kids. I'm not going to look like a slob. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, that's why I'm, I'm lost and flabbergasted when people see the negative results of things other people do and then they do it it's like how many like times does a cigarette company have to tell you yeah the odds are we're gonna fuck up your body and people are like well that's cool i'll still smoke like what the what the fuck like yo you can catch aids if you bang people raw dog and don't wear a condom that you don't know eh, it's worth it what like, what are you talking? If I tell you you walk in that burning house and you're gonna burn to death and die, why would you walk in that burning house? You know, it just doesn't make sense to me. It's just pure logic. You know what I mean? So, you know, I would look at the world, even when I was young, for instance, I was like, how do I didn't have a male role model, right? The only man in my life was sexually abusing me, right? So, like, 
I, I didn't know like how you're supposed to talk to a girl or how you're supposed to handle a bully or anything, definitely nothing about life or business or money, you know what I mean? Or the future, like no one was teaching me that stuff. So um, I just, I watched the world. I was very analytical since I was a kid because even when I was being molested, I would lay in my bed and think to myself, why does this dude do this? Like what's wrong? You know what I mean? So like I would assess everybody and everything around me. So like that old lady over there, why is she lonely? What's going on with her family? And like, I wonder why she's alone. Like, why, does she, why is she so angry at everybody in the neighborhood? What's wrong in her life, right? Uh, or this kid at school, why is he being bullied? Like, why do they treat him like that? Why doesn't he stand up for himself? What's happening at his house that makes him think it's okay to be bullied? Like, so like, I would always analyze and assess people and the things around me. Like, even when I was young, because I didn't have a man to like really kind of guide me on what I was supposed to do, or who I was supposed to be. I was pretty lost as a kid. I didn't, I, I, I didn't even know, like, right? So I was, like, I was always too black for the white kids and too white for the black kids. So I didn't really, like, fit in anywhere. I was like, who am I, right? And so I would watch, like, I was a big fan of Sylvester Stallone. I used to, in my mind, treat him like he was my dad, right? So, like, Sylvester Stallone, um, Bruce Willis, and Arnold Schwarzenegger, they'd always play roles where they were, like, family men that did the right thing, had good morals and made sure everyone was being honest. So that's what I thought a man was supposed to be. So that's kind of what I model myself as in my own way. Uh, but like, I've always been somebody that would look at the best. Most people want to emulate the best and then be like them, right? I want to be like Mike, right? Um, I would watch the best in class to see what they're doing and see what they're messing up on or what they're not doing. And that's what I would hone in on. And I would become great at that thing that they're not doing right. So I never looked at like problems or obstacles or issues as setbacks, but more in hindsight, set forths because they help me advance because now I'm stronger. So like, if you look at like problems that happen in your life, look at it like a slingshot that's pulling you back. But then everything you learn from that, you're now full of so much more knowledge that when it it flings you, you can run so much more faster because you've got way more knowledge and experience than everybody else that's kind of slugging their way through. Did, did you just think about that analogy or did you hear that before? I just made this. Oh, I love mean. that, Clinton. I love that. I'm going to frame that right there. Mm -hmm. Whew, that, that's such a great analogy. Think about your setbacks as a slingshot, pulling you back, pulling you back, but you learn from it. And you come through it with so much more experience and knowledge, it shoots you forward. Great. I love that analogy. I've never heard it, but I'm sure someone used a slingshot as an analogy before. I don't think so. I've never heard that before. But uh, that's, that's a great analogy. Clinton, I want to talk about the book just a little bit more, right? When I was coming up and I was trying my best to get into the music industry, Donald S. Passman wrote a book called Everything You Need to Know About the Music Industry. Right. That was Bible. He came from the lawyer's perspective. He was a lawyer. Right. You are coming from a completely different perspective because you're more on the ground. You're more a part of what makes the industry move. So we want, so I, you know, I would love to see this book become the Bible, not just this year, but for years and years to come. People are like, you have to pick up how to win big in the music industry, in the music business. Yeah. 
for you, <clears throat> when you were writing this book, was it all just your personal experiences or was it you just looking and saying to yourself, if I had known these things in the beginning, I would have gotten a lot further, a lot quicker. Like what was yeah. your mindset going into this? Yeah, so let's be clear. This is not an autobiography by any means. It's not about Clinton. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's about the tools and the strategies. This is the modern day guide to help the aspiring artists and navigate their way to win big in the industry. Look at the book you just talked about um, is over 20 years old, right? So like the world has changed tremendously in the past five years, 10 years, let alone way back then. Plus that's from like, again, from a lawyer's point of view, right? So there's a lot of legalities, very complex book to understand. It's much thicker. You know, there's like a lot more things that, that, look, what do people care about nowadays? How do I get famous? How do I make money? How do I build my brand? How do I go viral, right? So it's like, that's really all you care about for the most part, right? So what this is, is it shows you all of that. However, I'm feeding it to you like I'm putting medicine in the baby food, right? So tricking you that you're getting the knowledge that you need while I'm giving you the information that you want, right? So, you know, all of like, I think it's like, man, some of these chapters are so killer, bro. But yeah, like if I had this information, I even say it in the intro, I go, yo, it's a good thing I went through all this shit because I can feed it all to you now. No one had this information when, I, when we were coming up, right? So it's like, the only thing worse than having no goals is having too many goals. That's one of the chapters, right? Um, you know, stop waiting for some magical moment that doesn't exist. And what that means is like, you got all these people that are like, oh, I got this killer record. I got to wait for this right moment to happen at this right time when this right thing happens and this right thing, da, 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 da. No, go, put it out, man. That one song, that one idea, that one action could be the thing that that one person you needed to hear or, or find out about it, hears it and changes everything for you. And I give examples about that. You know how many producers right now are kicking themselves in the ass because they made some beats and they, they only wanted Jay-Z to be on it? Jay-Z never got the beat. Three years now, they're still sitting on that beat. The beat wouldn't even match anybody nowadays. It's old. And somebody else came out with a beat that sounded like you. always like, fuck, if only I got that beat to Jay-Z. Why didn't you get it to some no-name guy and break some new dude and you would have been known? And now guess what? Jay-Z's like, who made that beat for that guy who's number one? Oh, Sean Preston? Let me call him. You know what I'm saying? Like, and they don't know that, man. They're waiting for some magical moment that doesn't fucking exist. Like, make people buy into you, not just what you're selling. You know, that goes back to the whole networking thing. Stop trying to knock down brick walls with snowballs. You know, if you're doing the same thing over and over again, it's not working fucking change you know what i'm saying it's like people just sit and complain yo if these people didn't hate on me if only this happened it's like giving al bundy poke high stories if coach put me in the game I would have <laughs> he didn't all right so it's over what are you gonna do now you know what i'm saying it's like one of my favorite chapters is mastering art what art stands for is automatic resourceful thinking right and that's something i've done my entire life I don't look at problems as problems. As soon as a problem happens, the first thing I think about is, how do we fix it? What's the resolution? Because the problem already happened. We can't rewind time. But I can fix the future. So it's like, if, this, if my house burnt down right now, I'm not going to sit for weeks. My house burnt down. <laughs> I'm going to be like, yo, my house burnt down. How do I get in the house? How do I resolve everything? What did I lose? How do I you know, find what I didn't lose? That's just how my, main, my brain operates. 
And if you can remove emotion to detach emotion to the business that you're doing, then you can act much swifter and smarter because you're not, not buried and boggled down by emotion, right? So it goes back to, you know, when you were saying, when you hit trying times, right? If you don't prepare for failure, uh, then it's gonna hit you a lot harder. If you build a business model and there's no room for failure, or you're not predicting or projecting any failure, then like you're gonna fail even harder than you would if you planned for it. For example, a simple, easy way to understand what I mean by that is, um, what if you lose your job? What are you doing today in the event you lose your job? What does the average smart person do? They're putting money in savings to protect themselves in case they lose that job, they have money to pay their rent and eat, right? That's a smart way to plan for failure. You know what I mean? So it works like that in any business, whether you're like, what if that employee quits? What if my partner dies? What if my car doesn't work anymore? What if my health starts to deteriorate? Like, if you don't plan on any of these things, then you won't be prepared to deal with them accordingly, thus causing that problem to be intensified because you didn't plan for it. Make sense? Absolutely. You know, I can speak to you all day, and we got to bring this to a close. I got a couple of quick questions you know, I'm listening to you intently. What what type of student were you, Clinton? I didn't I didn't even graduate high school. No way. No. No so, way. Uh, yeah, I don't, as a matter of fact, I don't even I don't even recall. If you had to take a percentage of how many times I stayed in a full class, <laughs> like I would either show up late, ask for a bathroom pass, like pretend like I'm sick, skip class. Like I wasn't a good academic student at all, um, I didn't have the patience. I didn't have, I couldn't sit in the class. There's a scene in Goodwill Hunting, if you're familiar with the movie. Very, and in, in no way, shape, or form am I saying that I'm a genius, but this is, I relate to this moment when Matt Damon is sitting with the professor and he had to give him some kind of essay, and the professor's reading it and he's like, he's impressed, and he's like, wow, have you ever thought about this? And Matt's like, yeah, it's in there. And he goes, what about, Matt's like, it's in there too. He goes, do you ever think about it? He goes, do you know what it's like to watch you guys fucking fumble around with this shit when it comes so easy to me? Like, that's what life is to me. Like, life is so easy, people fuck it up. You know what I'm saying? It's like emotions fuck it up. Ignorance fucks it up. Lack of compassion fucks it up. It's not because the world is tough. It's because you're a stubborn, hard-headed prick that doesn't want to realize how easy life is and you want to make it difficult because your ego or your greed or your you know, self-pity like, those are all the things that get in the way of people, like, moving forward. And we fight over the dumbest thing in life, man. You know, I love where this conversation is going. And I want you to speak, because there are parents out there who their idea of success, you know, they want, they want the best for their kids. Get a great education. Graduate school. Go to college. This is what success is to them. And... I don't knock anything when it comes to formal academic education, but you have achieved so much. And I think that this is a part of, of your story that's really going to resonate with so many people out there who maybe academically they didn't do well, but they have a knack for something else. And well, you know what? 
Go ahead. Said, while I was coming up, like when I was in my prime, like one of the greatest mixtape DJs all over the radio stuff, like I never talked about, and this even goes back to the Boston thing, if I wanted to try to get stripes or get credibility, I never talked about like me doing bad in school or my life as a criminal, right? Like robbing houses, stealing cars, sticking people up. Like I never talked about that stuff. One, because I thought it was whack. Like I wasn't proud of it. I'm not out here like, man, I used to do this shit trying to get stripes. I'm trying to get stripes on doing dope shit. And that's not dope, right? So like, I never talk about these things because I never wanted a kid to go to their parent and be like, well, look at Clint Sparks. He was a fuck up and now he's doing good. You know what I mean? But like, to, to get into what you were just gonna say, it's like, when you just said parents want the best for their kids, do they really? Or do they want the best so that they can feel, in their mind, they did a good job by making sure their kid like, maybe your kid is happy living out in the woods in a tent off the, off the earth, and that makes them happy. Like, only thing that should matter, if they're upset, that's the only time you should be upset. If they're happy, mission complete, right? And by the way, a kid, if there's a kid watching right now, the biggest thing that advice I can give you right now is don't compare or compete with other people. Decide what type of person you want to be and then don't let anybody's opinion sway the type of person you decided you're going to be. Nobody's cool is cooler than your own cool. You know what I'm saying? So if you decide this is the kind of cool that I want to be, who gives a shit what somebody else thinks is cool? And if you, there's a, there's a quote I want to read from my book that says, when you compete with yourself, you can only get better. When you compete with others, then you are only aiming to be better than their best, which may never be as good as yours. Amazing. Amazing. We'll end it right there, Clinton. Oh, my God. I'm so inspired. How to win big in the music business. It's not out yet, though. Oh, so, it's not out. Well, it comes out in three and a half weeks. By the way, with this book, I also made a course with over 50 videos I got to go from Director X to Fabian to Yo Gotti to the biggest names in there helping you understand how to go from your bedroom to winning big. Whether you want to be a video director, you want to be a recording, mixing engineer, you want to start your own record label, you want to understand financing, you want to understand how to make effective content on YouTube, I got the best of the best in that course teaching you everything on how to win big. But you need this book. This book is going to give you the formula that everybody from Diddy to Drake to Beyonce they all use the formula that's in this book to continue to win big. You can't just have the formula. You have to learn how to use it effectively. I give you the formula and teach you how to use it. Get familiar. Follow me at Clinton Sparks and get familiar. I'm committed to help you for the long run, not just that this book. I love it, Clinton. I, I would expect nothing less from you. Thanks, continue man. blessings, peace and love, and Clinton, you're already making power moves, but keep making those power moves out there. Thanks to you for helping me make power moves throughout my journey. Be good, brother. We'll speak soon. All right, buddy. Peace. What's up, guys? Thanks for sticking with me to the end of the video. Truly appreciate you. If you like anything you heard here today, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. And if you know anybody that can benefit from this message, feel free to share. Peace and love.